Hello, and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim, to introduce you to change makers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help, or not. We look at learning in traditional settings, schools and universities, but also outside of them, after school, at home, and of course, at work. In our second series, we're looking at how schools are coping with COVID-19, including what lessons we will apply to the hopeful aim of building back better. Topics we obsess on include nimble innovations, closing equity gaps, and ways to prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. In 2018, I was lucky enough to interview the president of Yale University, Peter Solovey, in Davos. And I said, so, you know, what's going on back home? And he said, we just launched this course and it's the most oversubscribed course Yale has ever had. Nearly a quarter of the entire student population had signed up for this course. And that course was Psychology and the Good Life, which Lori taught back then. And then she has taught that on Coursera. And while she was trained in animal cognition and sex evolution and human behavior, she is now focused on well-being. So welcome Professor Lori Santos, a professor of psychology from Yale University. We're delighted to hear from you. And I, for one, cannot wait to hear how to be happy in a pandemic. Thank you so much, Jenny. It's really fantastic to be here today. What I wanted to do in the chat today is to sort of talk to you a little bit about how I got interested in the science of well-being, you know, how I started this course in the first place and why I thought it was so important. But then to kind of give you a kind of enormously like squished down crash course so you can learn a lot of what I teach my students in the class about how you can live a flourishing, happier life, even in the context of the challenging times we're facing today. As mentioned, I'm a professor at this wonderful school at Yale University. I've been teaching there for over a decade. But just in the last couple of years, I took on a new role at Yale College. I became a, a head of college on campus. This means I actually live with students on campus. I kind of hang out with them in the dining hall. I sort of see them one on one. And honestly, when I first took on this role a couple of years ago, I really didn't like what I was seeing. I was seeing the college student mental health crisis up close and personal. And at first I thought this was something, you know, that was wrong with Yale, where I you know, saw so many students who were depressed and anxious and so on. But what I quickly realized is that this is just a feature of what's going on in college student mental health generally right now. I'm going to show you some recent statistics from one of the most recent national health assessments that happened in the U.S., and you can see just how bad this college student mental health crisis has gotten in just the last couple of years. So right now, nationally in the U.S., over 40 percent of college students report that they're so depressed it's difficult to function, so more than one in three. Over 50 percent of college students say that they regularly feel hopeless most of the time. Another over 50 percent now, almost two thirds, are saying that they regularly experience overwhelming anxiety, which is sort of the highest level of anxiety they could report. In addition, almost two-thirds report feeling very lonely most of the time. You know, we have the students, at least in residential colleges at Yale, where they're all living together, but almost two-thirds of them are reporting that they feel very lonely a lot of the time. And students are often feeling really, really overwhelmed. In fact, over 80% of college students right now report feeling constantly overwhelmed by all they have to do. And these kind of level of depression and anxiety and sort of feeling so overwhelmed maps onto an even scarier statistic, which is that right now, over 10% of college students report that they've seriously considered suicide in the last year. You know, so if you look out at a classroom of 100 students, maybe one in 10, you know, maybe 10 of those students might be seriously considering suicide. And so all these statistics were incredibly devastating to me when I first learned about them. And they meant that I really wanted to do something to help, right? Like I didn't want to see my college students facing depression and anxiety and all this stress without resources. And so I decided since I'm a psychology professor, like, ah, I can teach them resources through a class, right? I'll develop this totally new class that teaches students all these evidence-based strategies that they can use to feel better. I wanted to sort of pop out of the course catalog. So I christened it Psychology in the Good Life. So it sounded a little bit sexy. And the key behind the course was that it was a different sort of course than is typical in a university psychology department. It had the normal sort of thing that a, that a typical psychology class has, where you learn about the science, the social science of the good life. So students learn about you know, all these studies about happiness and flourishing and gratitude and so on. But I wanted the class to also go beyond that. And so I added a different component, which wasn't just the science and all the scientific findings of the good life, but also something about the practice of the good life. I wanted students to put what they were learning into practice in their own lives. And so the course had this kind of funny structure. It had the normal course requirements, you know, the midterm final exam kind of thing. But we also added in what I called course rewirements. And so these were practices homeworks, if you will, that students had to do to rewire their habits. 
I couldn't force students to do these things for a grade, but I was able to put them in the syllabus with a date. And it turns out for, you know, very type A Yale students, if you put something in the syllabus with a date, they're going to do it anyway. And these were just the practices that I'll be talking to you about today. Things we know from an evidence-based perspective can improve well-being. Simple things like taking time for gratitude, making better social connections, taking time to savor good events in life, and healthy practices, things like meditation and exercise and even sleep. Students were assigned these things to do across weeks. And so, you know, I put the whole class together, you know, like submitted the syllabus. It was a totally new class on campus. I thought, you know, 30 or so students would show up. You heard the kind of punchline of the story, which is like way more than 30 students showed up. In fact, a quarter of the entire Yale student body arrived for the first day to take this class which was really cool because it told me a few things. One is it told me that students are voting with their feet. They don't like this culture of feeling depressed and anxious and they really wanted to do something about it. The second thing this course told me was that students really don't want platitudes. They don't want life advice that's not evidence-based. They wanna hear what the science says they can do better and they're really willing to put this into practice. And so, as mentioned, you know, I first taught this class back in 2018 when it seems almost honestly kind of prescient to be talking about wellness and well-being. Right now, if you fast forward to these days in 2021, it's been a little bit challenging. You know, if I had to say, you know, give a metaphor for what the last 12 months have looked like, my metaphor is it's kind of been like a mental health dumpster fire, right? You know, COVID-19 has really changed the way we interact with one another. It's changed the way we run our educational institutions. It's changed the way we interact with our colleagues. It's changed the way we hang out with our families. It's caused tremendous uncertainty and disruption of routines and just fear and anxiety. It's been frankly awful. And when you go through a challenging time like this, especially if you're a professor who teaches teaches a class about happiness, it raises a particular question, which is what can we do to become happier during these times? Are all the sorts of things I was teaching my students back in 2018 still relevant right now? And that's what I want to go through in the rest of my talk today. I want to sort of walk through the best tips that we know from the science of well-being that we can be using right now to feel happier in 2021. Starting with top insight number one, if we want to be happier right now in this challenging time and in general, we really need to realize a particular thing, which is that we need to be making time for what I'm going to call nutritious social connections. One of the most profound findings in the history of positive psychology is that pretty much every study shows that happy people are more social. Happy people spend time with their friends and family members. Happy people just spend time with other humans more. And these effects hold no matter what your personality type. So even if you self-report being an introvert, the research shows that your happiness will improve if you engage with a little bit more social connection. One study in this field said that social connection is a necessary condition for high happiness. Now, all that seems well and good normally. You know, it's hard to get our social connection in, but this is even trickier right now in the position many of us find ourselves in, where most of us are still socially distancing, right? We're not able to see people socially at work or to see our friends in the same way and so on, right? What can we do to boost our social connection right now, especially given this tricky time? And the advice that I give my students is that it is now more than ever important to make sure that you're finding what I'm going to call nutritious social connection. My students who take my big long class know that I'm always comparing sort of happiness with these analogies from the nutrition world, and I'll use one with you as well. You know, if I put up this slide here and I asked you, hey, you know, look at this picture, is this stuff in the image nutritious? You would say, yeah, you know, look at all that veggie plant-based goodness, like that's nutritious for you. Well, how did you know that? Well, you might know something about the science of nutrition, you might know that this stuff is good for you, but you probably also know it just through your own experience, right? If you eat this stuff, you're probably going to feel better than if you ate a bunch of fast food or something. It would just feel good in your body. You could mindfully notice how eating these things felt, and you would realize that if you want to feel good, you should bring more of this stuff in. That's the way I think about nutrition when it comes to social connection. There's some kinds of social connection that just naturally feel good if we're paying attention to it. You know, take a case of social connection pre-COVID where we'd meet up with a few friends, you know, maybe eat together and kind of, you know, share some laughs and so on. Will that feel nutritious? Well, definitely, you know, this is the kind of thing we're really built to pay attention to, right? We're built to feel social in this kind of context from our long history as primates, right? We can't do this as well anymore during physical distancing. So what can we build in its place? Again, the answer is that you need to pay attention to the kinds of things that feel good. Try it out and see what works. 
one of the things we could try to build in is to use our phones, you know, for the old fashioned way we use phones, which is to call someone, right? Is that going to feel nutritious? Well, it might have some sort of startup cost, right? You know, just like, you know, having the good healthy food instead of the fast food, it might take some work to schedule the call and, you know, figure out when you're going to meet up with someone. But when you do it, the research really suggests that this is probably going to feel good. You're connecting with another human in real time. You can often have a really close conversation with someone. We don't often predict that this is going to feel good, but when you engage in it, you often notice that it really does, right? Right. What about another way of using technology to connect? You know, let's say, you know, you call a few friends, you do a sort of Zoom happy hour. Is that going to feel good? Well, again, you need to sort of try it out and mindfully pay attention. It might feel fantastic. You know, if you're connecting with a small group of friends, you know, you get to see them in real time. But if you've been on like webinar number 42 for the day, you've been sitting there like taking Zoom classes all day, it might not feel as good, right? We need to mindfully pay attention to how much of this kind of thing we're building in. You know, just like a salad is nutritious, if you're on salad number 42, it wouldn't feel great. You know, same thing with the Zoom calls. Mindfully pay attention to what feels really good to you. Now let's take one more example that we kind of mistake for social connection. You know, we're feeling a little lonely, so we pull up our phone and hop on Instagram for a while. You know, we're kind of like ch checking our feeds on social media. Is that gonna feel nutritious? Well, you know, my instinct is this is kind of like the nutri-suite of social connection, right? It feels like maybe we're connecting, but actually we're not really getting anything nutritious out of it. But again, the key is for you to mindfully pay attention to what this feels like. You know, after a, a scroll on Reddit or a scroll through your Instagram feed, pause and ask yourself, how did this feel right now? And usually the answer is going to be not as good, not as good as sort of connecting with somebody live in real life. And so that's top insight number one. If we want to be happier, especially during this time of social distancing, we need to make sure we're even more intentional than usual about getting in some social connection. We need to be making time for what I'm going to call nutritious social connection. That gets me to top insight number two, another thing we don't often expect, but if we want to follow what the happiness research says, we're going to be happier in all cases where we're helping other people. That's what the research suggests. Helping others makes us happier than we expect. Now, this is something that's a little countercultural right now. I mean, we all know that helping others can make us happier. We all know that's a good thing to do. But when we're down in the dumps, when we're having a challenging time, many of us think that the right path forward is to do something nice for ourselves. You know, right now, if you look, you know, in lots of like articles on the internet and things, you see all this talk about self-care, you know, treat yourself, self, self, self. But if you look at what happy people really do, happy people aren't that self-focused. Happy people are very other-oriented. Statistically, happy people give more to charity than unhappy people, even when you control for income. And statistically, happy people are spending more time on others. They're often volunteering more for charities or putting more time into their close relationships to do nice things for their friends and family members. They're just more other-oriented. And the research also shows that even if that's not your natural tendency, you can kind of copy the strategies of happy people to build in a little bit more other-oriented behavior. You can kind of force yourself to do nice things for others and still reap a happiness benefit. And um, we know this from some lovely work by Elizabeth Dunn and her colleagues. She's a professor at the University of British Columbia. She does a study that's really fun for subjects because she just walks up to them and hands them money and tells them how to spend that money. So if you were a subject in your study, you might meet Liz on the street. She'd walk up to you and say, hey, do you want to be in a study? You'd be asked to rate your happiness on a standard self-report validated scale for rating your happiness. Then you'd get some money. In her case, in one experiment, you'd get either $5 or $20. But the key is that she'd tell you how to spend it. She'd say, by the end of the day, you either have to spend this money on yourself, so do something nice to treat yourself, or you need to spend this money on someone else. Do something nice that's a little bit more other-oriented. Then you agree that Liz is going to call you later in the day, you're going to re-rate your happiness, and we're going to look at how your happiness changes over time. Now, Liz knows that people's minds don't often make the accurate prediction when we're thinking about what's going to make us happy, so she wants to see what subjects really think. She brings a different group of subjects in and asks them to predict, if you were in one of these two conditions, which would feel better? And subjects predict what maybe you might predict, which is like that treat yourself condition, that's going to feel really good, you're going to get something out of it, it's going to be better than spending your money on someone else. That's what we predict. But what the research shows is just the opposite. In fact, if you look at what really happens when subjects do this, they're happier at the end of the day and even at the end of the week when they spend the money on someone else, when they're really doing something nice for others. And so I think this is a critical insight that we need to take with us, especially during challenging times, right? You know, our instinct might be when we're having a bad day to, you know, splurge on ourselves. I know pre-COVID when I was having a bad day, it's like, well, I want a manicure. I want to, you know, treat myself to some takeout or something like that. I don't often think, let me treat my coworker to a manicure or let me surprise, you know, like my aunt or like, you know, my mom or something with takeout. That's not what we think, but the research shows that really is a path to happiness. 
And I think this particular path to happiness is super important to think about in the context of COVID-19, because many of us are getting little mini windfalls in money and time that we could be using on others. What do I mean by this? Well, if your life is anything like mine, you might be spending in a different way now. Like I'm not getting my normal morning latte. I'm not going out to you know parties as much. And I'm not commuting as much these days. There's little pockets of money I'm saving. It's only you know four or five dollars here and there. But what can I do to use that money to help other people? You know, spend that four or five dollars to help a local business or treat a friend of mine or something. You know, it's money we're not spending anyway. Could we spend it on others? Some of us are also getting little windfalls in terms of time. Not everyone, but you know some. Of you might not be commuting as much. You might be saving you know, as much as you know, 20 minutes a day, not doing your normal types of things, maybe not going to parties in the same way and so on. What can you do to use that time to help others? Our instinct is you know, self-care, plop down and watch Netflix like this person in the picture. But could we instead spend that free time doing something to help other people? And so that's top insight number two. If we want to be happier, we need to focus on others and spending our money and our time on helping others. Now we get to top insight number three, which is that if we want to be happier, we need to find ways to practice gratitude, both in our workplaces and in our home life. Now, gratitude is the kind of thing that can sound a little bit cheesy. It can also feel really hard to do in the context of a challenging time like COVID, right? You know, to sit and think about all the things you're grateful for feels tough when we're all pretty frustrated in the context of social distancing and changing our routines and so on. But the research shows that that's just simply not what happy people do. Happy people spontaneously bring to mind the sorts of things that make them grateful. And in fact, you can copy this practice of happy people simply by paying attention to what you're grateful for. In fact, one study shows that writing down three to five things you're grateful for every night can significantly improve your well-being in as little as two weeks. But it's not just kind of privately experiencing gratitude that boosts our well-being. We also get a big boost in well-being when we express our gratitude to other people. Why is expressing our gratitude to others so powerful? Well, you probably get a sense if you're paying attention to my other tips. This is like your midterm exam for the course, right? You have to make a social connection, right? You have to talk to someone to express gratitude. It's really nice to express gratitude to someone, like they really appreciate it. So you're doing something that helps others and you're experiencing gratitude. So in theory, we should see a big sort of boost in people's well-being when they do this. And we do. It's still quite striking to me how much of a boost you get when you sort of do this practice. And I'll show you one study that looked at this. This is a study by Marty Seligman and his colleagues. His subjects do what he calls a gratitude visit. So the prompt is, in the next week, I want you to write a letter of gratitude to someone who's helped you or been especially kind to you, but you've never really properly thanked them. Then, this is kind of pre-COVID, deliver that letter in person to the person in question and read it to them. What do people predict? When I told my college students this, you know, in, in class, one of the students screamed out emo to sort of college students speak for like awkward or too emotional. Like we think it's going to be kind of weird. But people who receive these gratitude visits often report that it's not weird. It's one of the best moments of their lives. They find tremendous purpose and meaning from hearing that they've been so valued by someone else. But what's even more amazing to me is what happens to the well-being of the person who does this gratitude visit, you know, you if you were doing this prompt, right? These researchers went and measured people's happiness after doing this gratitude visit for months on. And what they find is that just the act of simply doing this gratitude visit can boost up your well-being significantly for between one to three months. That's the power of gratitude. Top insight number four is that we have to pay attention to something else, which is everything around us. We need to be present and savor the good things. You know, being present sounds so easy, right? Just like, you know, notice what's happening to you in the present moment. But it's actually quite hard because we spend most of our lives not being in the present moment. We spend most of our lives mind wandering where you're thinking about, you know, what you're going to make for dinner tonight or that strange conversation you had with your spouse and so on. Like you're just not in the present moment at all. Research shows that we do this a lot. In fact, some research by Dan Gilbert's lab at Harvard suggests we spend just under 50% of our time mind wandering. And what's most problematic about that isn't just that we're not paying attention for about half the time, which is already problematic enough. What he finds is that this has a significant impact on our well-being. Every time you self-report mind-wandering, no matter what it's to, you're actually less happy than if you're just in the present moment. And so how can we become more present? Well, the science gives us two strategies we can use to do that. One is the simple act of savoring. Basically notice when a good thing is happening. You know, if you're eating a delicious ice cream cone, take time to be mindful of what's happening. What does this taste like? What does this feel like? How would I describe this to someone? Turn on your presence, something we can do at any point. 
But a second set of practices that can improve our presence and, and reduce mind wandering is the act of meditation. Um, research shows that this act of meditating, following your breath, intentionally sort of paying attention to one thing can improve your concentration and it can reduce your mind wandering in part because every time your mind wanders in a meditation practice, you're supposed to yank it back. And the research shows that if you do this, even novices who engage in simple meditation practices can actually reduce brain activity in regions of their brain that mind wander just through the simple act of meditation. And so that's top insight number four. We need to be in the present moment and savor the good times. But top insight number four comes with a kind of corollary, which is that we also need to be in the present moment, even if the present moment isn't feeling so awesome at the time. I don't know about your present moments lately, but I've had a lot more present moments that look like this than the like happy ice cream times during COVID, right? You know, we're feeling, you know, frustrated and annoyed and scared in some cases, anxious, right? This doesn't feel good. And so our instinct is to run away from these feelings. But research shows that that's not a great strategy. In fact, some work by James Gross and his colleagues explicitly had subjects suppress their emotions. So subjects had to watch a sad film and they were told, whatever you do, don't feel sad. What happened? Well, this act of suppressing emotions actually affected subjects' cognitive abilities. They actually showed thinking errors after this. They did worse on a memory test and kind of got cognitive problems because they were suppressing their emotions. They also showed physical problems. In fact, just in this like little lab experiment, Gross could find evidence of cardiac stress going on in these subjects who are suppressing their emotions. So suppressing emotions, not very good. But that raises a question, okay, the negative situations aren't going away, right? How can we get through those negative emotions? An important part of human nature, we're not supposed to be happy all the time, but how can we get through the things that feel kind of yucky? And here again, there's a fantastic meditation practice that can help. It's one that's been popularized by the meditation teacher Tara Brach, and it's a form of meditation known as RAIN, which is an acronym for Recognize, Allow, Investigate, and Nurture. You know, so let's say you're experiencing a negative emotion, you get a kind of annoying email from a colleague and you're feeling frustrated or you hear some scary COVID statistics and you get scared, you notice that you're feeling something negative. That's when you say, aha, I'm going to do RAIN. And the first step of RAIN is kind of what you just did. It's recognizing. What emotion are you going through? Is it frustration? Is it overwhelm? Is it fear? Recognize and call it what it is. Then you do the A, which is the allow. They say, I'm just going to allow this emotion to be there just as it is. I'm not going to run away. I'm going to kind of hang out with it and I'm explicitly letting it be. You know, as the Beatles said, let it be. You kind of let this emotion be. But that's when you do the I of the practice, which is the investigate. What you want to do is investigate with some interest and care. What does this emotion feel like in your body? You know, is it making your chest tight? Is it making your brow furrow? Is it causing you to crave certain things? Maybe you're craving a substance or you want to check your email or something. Hang out with this emotion and let it pass like a wave. What we know about emotions is that they tend to pass on their own like a crest and kind of go like a wave over time. While you're investigating, it kind of gives your brain something to do while that emotion is cresting and passing. But once it sort of subsides a bit, that's when you do the end, which is what's called the nurture. With some self-compassion, how can you take care of yourself given that you're going through this negative emotion? If, if a friend of yours was going through that emotion, how would you take care of them? Do the same thing for yourself. Research shows that practices like RAIN can reduce burnout even among first responders. So it's a fantastic technique to kind of protect yourself against negative emotions and engage with some resilience. So that's top insight number four. We gotta be in the present moment, not just when it's all you know, ice cream and unicorns and those things. The science suggests we should be in the present moment even when it feels yucky. It's a powerful way to get through our emotions safely. Now we get to the final insight of the course, which is one that we don't often expect and one that my students push back on a little, which is that if we wanna become happier, we need to become wealthy, but not in terms of money, in terms of time. There's a lot of fantastic new social science research that's on this new topic of time affluence, the subjective sense that you have some free time. It's the opposite of what many of us experience, which is time famine, where we're literally starving for time. And time famine has a huge hit on our well-being. In fact, one study showed that if you self-report being time famished, that has as big of a hit on your well-being as if you self-report being unemployed. We know unemployment is super bad for happiness. Time famine, this feeling that you don't have any time, is just as bad. Problem, as you've probably seen, is that many of us are feeling very time famished these days. Some of you might be feeling like you're running a daycare out of your house or running a school in your house, you know, not just your normal education job, right? We're all feeling a little put upon during COVID and it's hard to get objectively more free time. So how do we improve our time affluence? Well, there are two strategies we know from the literature. One is to find ways to spend your money to get more free time. You know, many of you during COVID or something might've gotten some takeout or like curbside pickup. 
you know, how is that a savings on time? Well, if you think about it, if you get a burger and fries takeout, that's a burger and fries you didn't have to fry up yourself. You didn't have to chop the potatoes. You didn't have to go to the grocery store and buy that stuff. You probably saved yourself like two hours, right? Can you reframe that purchase as giving you back a little bit of time? Because time affluence is about the subjective sense that you have some free time. Using your money to feel like you're getting back more time, even with something as simple as takeout, can be quite powerful. But an even better way to improve your time affluence is to make good use of what researchers call time confetti. Um, these days we do have some free time, but it's actually broken up into these little tiny chunks. You know, that five minutes before a Zoom meeting here and there, that 10 minutes when your kids go to sleep early. Those little pieces of time are what researchers call time confetti. But we can use them better. Researcher Ashley Willen suggests making a time confetti wish list so that when you get those five minutes, you know what you can do with it. And again, not do something for work, not like check your email, but you know, that's the time maybe you can engage in a quick meditation or text a friend to check in on them or, you know, make that, you know, appointment to sort of call someone you care about by phone. Like using your time confetti well to improve your happiness is a way to feel more time affluent and you get the double boost of well-being for what you're doing too. And so that's top insight number five. We need to become wealthier, not in terms of money, but in terms of time. And so you just went through the five insights from the science of happiness. Nice work, kind of squished a whole Yale semester into like a half hour. But I wanted to address a question that I think comes up whenever I present this work, which is, do these strategies really work, right? You know, I taught you know, Yale students all this stuff. Did it really improve their well-being? And the sad thing about teaching a class that got way bigger than I expected so quickly was that I didn't exactly have the full bandwidth to do what I had hoped to do, which is to do kind of pre-post testing to try to see if these strategies were really helping students. We weren't able to do it in the context of the live class. But as mentioned, we've now moved the class online to Coursera.org, where we have over 3 million learners who are taking the class, which is fantastic just in general that so many students are accessing this stuff, but also it gives us a huge sample size to see if this stuff is working. And so the we that I keep mentioning here is a team of fantastic folks from Yale, headed up by David Yaden, who's a postdoc, where we really tried to test whether or not these practices were improving well-being for people. The well-being measure that we ended up using was of trying to find a way to test individuals before and after they took a class. And what we did was to do my science of well-being class on Coursera. So these were all Coursera learners who consented to take the class. We tested their well-being before and after. But we also needed a control condition. And so we partnered with Yale, who offers a bunch of different classes on Coursera. And so we also tested well-being before and after students took an intro to psychology class. So it was another Yale psychology class, also on Coursera, same length and so on. It's just they weren't really learning about science of happiness per se in this class or doing the sort of strategies. Then all subjects took a standard measure of well-being and we sort of compared what happened before and after. Two things here that I think are fun. One is that both learners in the happiness class and learners in show psych are actually improving their well-being from time one to time two. This suggests that like taking content online and learning about stuff actually improves your well-being, which is awesome for many of us educators. Like we're actually helping students. That's fantastic. But the thing we really wanted to see was whether student well-being improved over and above the control condition when learning about these strategies for happiness. And the science of well-being learners are boosting up a whole point in a, or so on these happiness measures, even bigger than a point, whereas you're getting slightly less of an effect in the intro psych. What does this mean? This means that learning about these strategies, both learning about the science and putting them into practice, it really is a significant effect on students' well-being. On a standard 10-point happiness scale, students are going up about a whole point, which is pretty impressive. So all this goes to say that I think this stuff is pretty important, right? We can, as educators, reach students with these strategies and provide a mechanism for them to learn how to behave better to get these right evidence-based strategies, but also a forum for them to do it. And I think hearing about the scientific effects can only convince you even more of the importance of these practices. And so with that, I hope I've convinced you that happiness is important. It is something we can achieve even during COVID and that we as educators can really think about how to get this content out to students. Have you done any research on whether learning helps to improve happiness? We're trying to do that a little bit with this metric that we're doing where we're testing on Coursera. One of the things we'd really like to do is to ask whether or not it's the class part that's really helping students like improve their well-being as we've seen, right? You know, is it the kind of learning about the studies and taking the class 
or is it really doing these practices, right? You know, our science of well-being class has those both together, where students are you know, doing the science of the, you know well-being. They're learning about the same studies I taught you, but they're also getting these homeworks where we're telling them, hey, you got to do random acts of kindness. Hey, you have to you know make a social connection. You have to meditate and so on. And so far, we haven't done a version of the class that gives one but not the other. You know, the intro psych suggests that really learning does improve well-being just in general, right? But again, we don't know if that's learning specifically about the happiness stuff that's giving the boost or it's doing the practices. And the hope is that it's working, but we haven't gotten the full empirical evidence to show it just yet. For our students who thrive on consistency, what could this look like as a daily or weekly routine in schools as well as at home? I think this is really critical. You know, one of the reasons we assigned these sorts of things as homework was to give students you know, some practice in doing it. But I think one of the things I would do differently about the class is that we had a kind of different rewirement homework each week, you know, so one week was social connection, another week was random acts of kindness and so on. We hope that students would naturally keep doing them. I actually think an even more powerful version of this practice would be literally assigning students to do it every week, right? So it becomes a habit. You know, one thing we know about the behavior change literature is that things are more likely to become a habit when you do them all the time, when you do them every day. And so I think finding ways to kind of get students to do this more often, even if it's in the context of the class, can sort of lead students to do this more often overall. One thing we did do is all the students had a final paper for the class, and the final paper was a research paper, but you do research on yourself. So the idea was pick an intervention that you can do over four weeks and like look at how that affects your happiness long term. And I've heard, you know, lots of anecdotal reports of many students who say, you know, tried out meditation for those four weeks or tried out, you know, doing a random act of kindness a day. And what they found is in many cases it stuck, right? You know, if you do this sort of practice for four weeks and you realize that meditation is really helping you, you know, you're motivated to kind of stick with it. And so, yeah, I agree completely that consistency is the name of the game. You know, starting by assigning students these practices, you know, along with sort of learning about the science, it can really help them make habits that are going to stick, you know, beyond your course and, and hopefully beyond, you know, our, our education setting. You know, I'm testing my college students, but I hope they're going to take these practices, you know, into their 20s, into their 30s, into their marriages, into their workplaces, right? You know, getting students early and teaching them these things now can be really critical for giving them skills that are going to serve them their whole lives, hopefully. All of these things, gratitude, helping others, a lot of them can require not feeling depressed. And when you're feeling depressed, you're more self-conscious. You yeah. think you're a bore to everybody. You, I mean, John Cassiopo has done some great work on this. So like, how do you turn that spiral around to do some of the things you're saying are going to get us happy when we're not happy in the first place? I think there's two ways to answer that. One is like, if you're feeling it personally, right, it's just hard for you to get out of your own head and do some of these things. Another is if you're a parent or if you're just your student and you really want to help someone else, right? If it's you that's going through it, I think the real advice is that this is a spot where we need to give ourselves some self-compassion and some grace, right? We are in the middle of a global pandemic. We are not going to be the most awesome versions of ourselves. Even if you hear this and you think, I should implement this stuff now, don't do it in a way that makes you feel guilty. Do it in a kind of baby steps way. You know, so if you're experiencing anxiety, if you're experiencing this stuff, it doesn't mean like you have to like meet your friends for like, you know, the hugest social connection bash you've ever had. Just do a little bit, right? You know, one random act of kindness, like text a friend, right? You know, write down one thing that you're grateful for, right? You know, start really small. And the research really suggests that when you start small, you'll get that little hit, you know? So the one thing, you know, focusing on one thing you're grateful for, that will give you a little bump in your happiness, right? And that can that little bump can give you the bandwidth to do more over time. But that's advice for you, you know, if you're going kind of through this and having a tough time. What about someone else, right? And the question I get most is, you know, I'm fine, but I really want to help my kid or my spouse or, you know, my, my team member at work or things. And the answer I usually give to this is that we forget the power of good example here. You know, if you're engaging with a lot of gratitude, you know, if you're expressing what you're thankful for, you know, if you're getting out there and doing nice things for others, there are two things that will happen there. One is that, you know, our behaviors can be more contagious than we think. When other people see our example, they tend to change. There's lots of evidence for network effects on both positive behaviors and negative behaviors. So if someone's next to you in a node in a social network, you're more likely to copy those. But there's also lots of evidence for emotional contagion. You know, if you're engaging with these practices, the research suggests your happiness is going to boost up, right? And if you're naturally in a better mood, that kind of better mood can be contagious as well. Um, just like the negative people in our life can feel like they're sucking our energy and we're catching their mood, so can happy moods be contagious too. And so one way to affect the happiness of others 
is actually to help yourself. And I think this is a good strategy, you know, for some of the people out there, I think this is true for educators too, where, you know, we're can sometimes be other oriented to a fault. You know, we have to get reminded to put our own oxygen mask on first before helping others. And so this is a domain where I think you can give yourself some permission to work on yourself first, because that is a way of positively affecting other people. If you're happier, they're gonna wind up being happier too. But I think especially if it's a child you're trying to help, you know, this is a domain where you can harness the power of situations that improve things. And one of the the easiest strategies I think you can engage with, especially if you're dealing with a child who's like studying remotely and their routines are messed up and so on, is to like build back those routines. We are creatures of habit. And one of the things that's hurting us the most right now is we're kind of just discombobulated, right? We don't have the normal walk to school and then you're at school and then you walk home and then you're home. Like these normal landmarks in our day and in our lives are gone, right? And so one way you can build those back is to literally structure those and build those back you know so if you have students who are learning at home right now right like make a time when they transition to school like even if it's like walking to a different part of your apartment and they sit down right make that transition use rituals in your life to sort of start the school day end the school day i have a, a friend in my life who their kids all work at the same table in the kitchen and do homework and at the end of the day she takes a blanket and like literally throws the blanket over the table and it's like oh school's closed right and it sounds cheesy but those little rituals are the kinds of things that can tell our mind like, oh, okay, I'm done with school for the day, right? They're the things that we're kind of missing that are making us feel so discombobulated. So as much as possible, building that routine in can be really fantastic. And I think to the extent that you have some control over like the situations that your kids are in, that's not always true, you know, if you have older teenagers and so on, but to the extent that you have control, you can kind of build in practices that we know improve well-being. You know, you can institute it like, all right, we're all going to say, you know, something we're grateful for before dinner tonight, you know, or we're all going to take a walk you know, after after dinner, right? You know, we, I didn't mention it, but exercise is another healthy practice that we know can improve well-being. So like harnessing the situations you can control to build in these healthy habits and wherever possible set up rituals so that we can compartmentalize the different parts of our lives in the way that they were compartmentalized before, all of those things can be really powerful. How important do you think getting outdoors is? We think it's essential, but how do we get everyone to remember that? This is a fundamental problem with our well-being. Like our motivational systems aren't that well hooked up to what we're going to actually like. Um, neuroscientifically, this is talked about as a disconnect between what's called our wanting system, the system that like craves things that motivates us to do things, and our liking system, the system that actually gets like real pleasure out of our actions. You can see this disconnect between the wanting and liking system most profoundly in the context of drug abuse. You know, so if you are, say, you know, a heroin addict you know, you have incredible wanting for the drug, right? You crave it, you know, you'll steal for it. You know, it's, it's incredibly powerful. But then when you get the drug, you've already been taking it for a while, so you're habituated to it. It's not that you don't like it, but you just don't like it as much as before. So there's like this disconnect between wanting and liking. I think the problem of modern happiness is, is that we, as like non-drug addicts, have this like disconnect too, right? Walking outside outdoors is the sort of thing you just brought up. I think that's the kind of thing that research shows is incredibly useful for boosting our well-being both the walking part where you're getting a little bit of cardio in, often you're doing it with someone, so it's a way of getting social connection. Being outside can make us a little bit more present because we're kind of noticing things that are different than in our living room. And there's lots of growing evidence of what's called uh, kind of forest bathing or nature bathing, right? Just that the act of being in the outdoors seems to be something that can on its own boost our well-being. So really great thing. But then, you know, I'm sitting on the couch watching Netflix. I'm like, nah, I don't feel like it, right? My wanting system should be like, this is awesome. It's going to feel really good, but it doesn't know. And then there's the flip side. All these things our wanting system has us go for, you know, maybe plopping down to watch Netflix, which we might not actually even enjoy that much, you know, and some or social media is another case. You know, we mentioned, you know, sort of hopping on your phone and looking on your feed. Our wanting system feels like that's going to feel awesome. But then the liking system just kind of doesn't get it. And so, what can you do in any case of that disconnect, in particular, this disconnect with walking outside? Again, this is a spot where, you know, forcing yourself to do it, turning into a habit can be really powerful. You know, if you just have the rule, when we finish dinner, we go for a walk, you know, unless it's sort of a blizzard or something, we're just going to always go for a walk. Then you kind of always do it and it just becomes habit. It becomes practice. You kind of naturally build it in, right? Um, you know, this is also the kind of thing where social connection can really help. So another great way to make habits stick is to 
harness the support of other people, right? You know, commit like after dinner, we're not just going to go for a walk. We're going to go, you know, for a socially distanced walk with our next door neighbors, right? And then you feel like a jerk if you don't, you know, do it because you sort of promise someone else to do it. So harnessing the power of repetition, harnessing the power of social support. Um, and I think recognizing the science, like when you realize like this is really going to help me, sometimes that explicit awareness can be enough to kind of get you into the mode of doing those new habits too. I like that commitment devices and just sort of awareness and reminders. Have you measured happiness in children or younger people? And are these strategies different or the same in sort of maybe slightly younger, I think five to 18, you know, before we get to college? Definitely just before college. We know these kinds of things work really well for teenagers. There's lots of work on that. There's less work in much younger children, except in some domains. You know, So we know that social connection is really important even for younger children. The act of doing nice things for others is definitely something that we know can boost up well-being even in very young kids. In fact, there's a study out of Kylie Hamlin's lab at the University of British Columbia looking at toddlers doing nice things for others. And you can see boosts in smiling and boosts in well-being and so on. The suggestion is that these things are really universal, right? You know, you want to kind of bring them on in ways that really are child appropriate, right? But they can actually be really helpful. And so, you know, I think, you know, try the strategy of, you know, talking to kids about something like a process like rain when they're dealing with their emotions. Like you, you seem like you feel really mad right now. Let's figure out what that feels like. You know, what's going on in your head? You, you like talk about it, right? You know, we, we sometimes use the phrase, you know, use your words with children, right? You know, where we're trying to get them to express their emotions. Functionally, what rain it is, is doing that. It's like being like, oh, like angry. Is it really angry? Is there any sad in there? Is there any feeling, you know, overwhelmed or frustrated in there, right? And then like having kids do the process of feeling like, okay, let's, let's, let's be detectives. Let's figure out what this feels like in your body, right? It's going to help your kids identify these emotions and give them something to do so they can kind of get through them. And then teaching your kids to nurture themselves right? Teaching them to engage in practices that require self-compassion. There's lots of evidence in children that children who are more self-compassionate are less likely to procrastinate. They're more likely to persist when they get bad grades, right? Lots of evidence that kind of self-nurturing is a really important skill to get in early on in life. So less studies that like, you know, the normal age where we do studies, which is like adults or college students, but the studies that are there really suggest that these are universal practices that when kind of done in an age appropriate way can be powerful skills that we're teaching kids again not just for the short term but things that they can use in the long term too i want to ask a slightly more philosophical question which is should happiness really be the goal lots of thoughts to this question so one thought is i think you know we need to be careful about what the definition of happiness really is right like i think we think happiness is like this manic i'm always in a positive emotional state like nothing is going badly kind of thing right Whereas real happiness, like people who, you know, self-report happiness on these life satisfaction skills and so on, happiness is less kind of like manic and intense than that, right? It's not, it's it's just kind of like a state that you're kind of content with life. You're sort of letting it be, right? It's, it's not as sort of emotional as we often think about it. The second thread is, you know, this question of like, should we want to be happy? Is that the right goal? And I think here, you know, my, my sense is like, again, doing it the right way, not the like manic extreme happiness, but just like, you know, should we just be okay? Should we be satisfied with our lives? Should we have, you know, positive emotions in addition to our negative emotions? You know, we, we think that like happiness is the answer at the end of all the good circumstances, that if circumstances are good, then we'll be happy. But there's evidence from the research of the opposite causal pattern, right? In other words, happy people are more likely to get good circumstances in life. There's evidence, for example, that if I measure your cheerfulness at age 18, that's going to predict not only whether you have a job in your late 20s, but whether or not you enjoy that job and the salary that you're making. You know, So your happiness levels as a teenager are actually predicting life outcomes like your job obtainment and your salary later on. Again, shocking, but it's what the data really suggests. Happier people in their teen years wind up having more successful and happier marriages later on. And happier people even have better immune function. There's one study showing that if you expose people to rhinoviruses, these days we're always talking about coronaviruses, but rhinoviruses are a set of viruses that cause the common cold. So if you bring people in and expose them to cold viruses, and then you look at who actually gets sick, people with a higher positive style, so in other words, people who are more constantly in a good mood and so on, they get sick less often than people with a low positive style, right? And so, you know, if, when we start thinking about it, like the, we get, might have the causal arrow backwards. We think like, oh, if you're, you know, doing well economically and you're healthy and all this stuff, you'll be happy. But there's evidence for the opposite pattern. There's evidence that happiness first might make it easier to get that other stuff. And so I actually start off with my, cl my class with some of these data because I think it really shows us that like happiness isn't the first world problem. We think obviously, you know, we have to fight for equality and make sure everybody has a living wage and they can put food on their table and so on. But like once you get past some of those basics, 
like, you know, it might be that focusing on happiness is really going to be the thing to start with. Have you gotten good feedback from your students on what they didn't like about the class? Like there's clearly a lot of demand for it and there is this anxiety and depression, but what kind of feedback have you gotten? I'll kind of mention two things. So one is that, you know, there are definitely a lot of messages that the course teaches that the students don't like. You know, one is that like money is not going to make you happy, right? Grades aren't going to make you happy, right? All the things that my Yale students have been taught their whole lives are the most important thing to go for. I'm saying those don't matter anymore. And what matters is the stuff you're sacrificing to get those good grades. What matters is your social connection and your sleep and your, you know, the fact that you're other oriented, not selfishly going after your own pursuits, right? It's kind of a hard pill to swallow. And it really shows us that, you know, a lot of higher ed might not be built in a way that's promoting student happiness. So I think it causes like a lot of, you know, hard, hard conversations and hard kind of soul searching for students who've been on a path that might not be leading to happiness as much as they think. So I think that's one of the domains. The second domain is like, you know, again, a real conversation about whether or not like we need to kind of based on that sort of change the structures, right? You know, should we be changing admissions, right? If we know that admissions is causing to students go for grades and is causing, you know, I mean, if you if you look at those statistics that I started with the, the National College Health Assessment, they also ask, okay, given, you know, these mental health issues, what's going on? What's the cause of your stress? Why are you feeling so depressed? Why are you feeling so anxious? And then there's a lot of things students self-report, but the number one that most of them report is academic stress. It's not social stress, it's not financial stress, it's academic stress. And so I think as educators, we really need to think about like whether the things that we're designing, the structures that we're designing for students to fall into are both doing their education a disservice, um, but also doing their well-being a disservice. And again, I think those are hard questions to reckon with. And you, know, you mentioned having a conversation with uh, my president, Peter Salovey at Davos. You know, it's hard conversations I've had with Peter and I think it's something that we really need to think about. What is a small strategy or habit you can give educators of young scholars who struggle with identifying feelings in general to help build coping strategies? I think one thing is really to, you know, especially if you have time in a classroom where you could work on these kinds of things, is to really work on this sort of recognizing what the different emotions are, right? Because I think what one thing that happens is when we're kind of feeling bad, we feel like we just feel bad, right? Which is like mad or we're just like, ah, uh, we just feel yucky. But the solution is going to be different if I'm frustrated versus if I feel overwhelmed versus if I feel sad versus if I feel lonely, right? And I think oftentimes children, we don't do a lot of education on which emotions are which and what the reaction to is of different emotions. So I think strategies like my colleague here at Yale, Mark Brackett, talk about a lot where you get students to kind of identify emotions. There's lots of resources um, through the Greater Good Science Center, which is a resource through Berkeley. It's a center at Berkeley that focuses on well-being. They kind of have these little um, very broad emotions wheels that you can use where it's like you know within frustration there's overwhelm there's anger there's you know like like shame there's like there's and you can kind of go through the wheel and kind of talk through what those different things are just classroom exercises where you engage students with thinking about their emotions not just a bad emotion but you really help them identify it those can be really useful but in part because again we need to identify what our emotion is to figure out what what to do next right you know if i'm like feeling really upset at work it, it's going to be a different reaction whether i'm angry at one of my colleagues or just feeling overwhelmed because I have too much to do or I'm feeling frustrated because of a student, like you have to kind of identify it to take action on it. And I think the more we can help students identify their emotions, the more they can kind of, you know, soothe themselves by taking some action to figure out what they need to do to help with those emotions. What's the impact of trauma on happiness? If something genuinely dreadful happens to you, death, separation, what happens to happiness? Does it disappear completely? Is it harder to reach even with the tools you've shared today? So this is another spot where I think we have some misconceptions, right? We assume, again, you know, bad things happen, you're going to decrease your happiness. But the research really shows that that's not the case as much as we think. We've all heard of this concept of post-traumatic stress, but the research shows that there's also a lot of evidence for what's called post-traumatic growth, that after a trauma, you actually get stronger rather than weaker or have more struggles, right? And the post-traumatic growth seems to help in a couple different ways. One is that after trauma, we can sometimes get stronger social connections. So, you know, you probably know that in life, those of you who've gone through tough times, like you learn the people who matter to you most, right? You know, some of us might be even experiencing this in the context of COVID. There's also evidence, for example, that post-traumatic growth can come from finding more meaning in life. You go through an awful event, you know, a near-death experience, like a awful illness, like 
you learn what really matters, right? Like it kind of causes you to rethink some of the ways you're spending your time. And awful events can sometimes lead to resilience, right? Again, we know this in our own life. I feel like we're all going to be a little bit more resilient after this, right? You know, like after COVID, like, oh, I have to stay home for a week because I'm sick. I'm cool with that. Like, you know, after a year, like you can deal, right? And so I think we kind of have this sense of like trauma is always going to be negatively impacting, but the, the psychological research really shows that it's okay. It's one of the reasons that people who have awful, awful circumstances in their lives often aren't as unhappy as we think. And the flip side, you know, you can have fantastic circumstances, be this rich person on yachts and like have, you know, every pleasure of life and really feel empty and really sad. And so I think we have to kind of get away from this idea that our circumstances are our are, are destiny, right? Our circumstances can lead to lots of different mental health outcomes. Even circumstances that are truly dire can actually lead to more resilience and more strength afterwards. Why is there such a disconnect between what we think is going to make us happy and what actually makes us happy? Like, what what happened? We as humans should be wired to do the things that are good for us. I mean, if I had to like redesign the human brain, I would be on top of it. You know, any of you learned folks who are like in the tech world or something watching this, like, let's get on this. Yeah, it's 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 hard. I mean, but but I disagree with the premise. Like, you know, we should know what makes us happy. No, 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 no. Like, what natural selection? You know, it's process that builds us wants us to do. It wants us to survive and get babies out. Like that's its goal. So it probably wants a brain that craves a lot, probably wants a brain that's never satisfied, that's going to keep pushing you and so on, right? It wants a brain that's good at motivating you. And, you know, the things that make us happy might not be its goal. And so I think, you know, it's designed kind of badly, you know, for really achieving true happiness. But the good thing is that by understanding how it's designed, by understanding these mistakes, by understanding these misconceptions we have, we can actually do a lot better. And that's actually a big message of the class, right? Sometimes I get asked, like, oh, are you permanently happy all the time? Have you gotten over all your misconceptions? Like, no, like I still, you know, like I have to remind myself like, oh, I, I don't buy yourself the manicure, like gift the manicure to someone else. That's what's going to work. Or when I'm like, kind of like not feeling other people of like, oh, social connection. I've been sitting on the couch. I should get up and go for a walk or something. Right. Like you don't instantly like learn this stuff. Like those misconceptions are always going to be there. You just learn strategies to kind of help you overcome them. So yeah, I wish if we could redesign the brain to be going for happiness rather than, you know, copying our genes into the next generation, that would be fantastic. Well, the best we can do is kind of learn what the errors are and try to do better. And have you found anything in this totally bizarre, crazy year that's kind of maybe off piece? Something you were like, oh, wow, did, did not see that one coming, right? Like something completely like, maybe sometimes being super selfish can also be good or I don't know, did anything surprise you in this past year, which as you have pointed out, really tested us? It's worth saying, like, this has been an awful year, right? Like, people that we care about have died, right? You know, so many institutions we've cared about, so many restaurants I cared about have closed, right? Like, people's livelihoods are destroyed. Like, it has been awful. But the practice of gratitude means there's still things that we can be grateful for despite this stuff. You know, one of the things that I'm really grateful for is that, you know, it, all the things I've lost this year made me realize and I was going through my life with blinders, right? Like I didn't like scream with glee every time I could walk into a supermarket without a mask and pick out toilet paper, right? I didn't scream with glee every time I walked into my local coffee shop and got a latte. You know, I didn't scream with glee every time I like got to hug my mom who lives in a different state in the US and I don't see her now because of social distancing. Like there was so much I was taking for granted. And my hope is that, you know, as vaccines are rolling out, you know, there's this like light at the end of the tunnel where I'm thinking, I'm gonna get that stuff back soon. And I really feel like a lot of us might, you know, be more grateful as we go back to this stuff. We're going to realize all this stuff we took for granted and just appreciate it a lot more. And if, if, you know, this awful pandemic gives us all that, then I think, you know, there's a benefit there that we should all really recognize. Well, I, for one, am very grateful to the hour that I've just spent with you. And I wish you the best in all the gratitude and excitement that we get post-COVID. Thank you so much. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.